Now, will you turn with me to uh, James, the fourth chapter? Last uh, week or week before last, I went back to the men's restroom in the rear of the building during the school week, and there was a little boy standing in the middle of the room holding onto his trousers like this. He must have been about five or six. And uh, I struck up a conversation with him. I asked him his name, and he told me, and I said, do you like school? He said, no. And I said, oh, that's, that, that's too bad. Tell me, why don't you like school? He says, because I can't snap my pants. <laughs> and I thought, that's so much like life, you know. There's all these, these little... Uh, Things that bum us out and, and make our days uh, bad, and, and which, uh, because they seem to be insoluble, really create a lot of distress. One of the reasons that I, I love the scriptures and love to teach them is that the Bible talks about just that sort of thing, how to solve the, the little nettling, troublesome things of life, which, if not handled properly, uh, grow into to very troublesome things. I hope you know by now this is not a religious book. The uh, Book of Common Prayer and books on theology and hymn books may be religious books, but this is not a book about religion. This is a book about life and how to live it and how to cope with it. As Peter puts it, this is the book that tells us how to, how to live life and, uh, and to uh, handle everything associated with it. That's the purpose of the Bible. And we, we neglect it to our own peril. Isn't it odd how we spend so much time watching television and reading books, some of which may be helpful and some of which are downright destructive, and, and listen to a lot of ungodly counsel and, and don't look into this book? I mentioned before the time I was walking through the library of the University of California at Berkeley, and I saw student down in one of the, uh, down in the stacks, down in the basement, in a carol, reading a comic book. And it struck me as, as funny. Here, here's the wisdom of the ages surrounding him, and he's reading a comic book. How often we do the same thing. Here's a book about life and how to live it, how to comprehend uh, the, the, the difficult things about life and, and how to head into problems and solve them. And we ignore it. We do so to our own, uh, to our own uh, destruction at times. And that's why I love to teach it, because it, it shows us a way out. Now, we have a, a great illustration of that principle here in chapter 4 this morning. James raises a very pertinent question, pertinent in view of the warlike circumstances of our world. What is the source of quarrels and in conflicts among you? That's a good question. Where do wars come from? How can we account for this terrible, terrible thing that, that happened in Beirut week before last? Uh, those of you that have sons or husbands or, or brothers uh, or sisters in the, in the service uh, know how emotional that moment was. It, 
those are not just names. Those are not just Marines. Those are fine young men whose lives have been, uh, have been destroyed. How can we account for that sort of thing and what's happening in the Caribbean and in Central America and uh, in, in India, this ongoing conflict between the Sikhs and, and the Hindus there, or in Iran or Iraq or in a hundred other places around the world where men are, are destroying each other. How can we account for that sort of thing? Uh, Cicero, the, the Roman statesman, said that war is a time when fathers bury their sons in, instead of sons burying their fathers. Such a note of, of, of pathos in that, in that notion that young lives are being wasted all over the world for senseless, selfish reasons. How, how can we account for that sort of thing? There have been various attempts throughout the years to, to try to resolve Conflict and solve the problem of war. The first, perhaps at least in modern times, was the uh, conference at The Hague back in the 19th century and then the League of Nations. And the United Nations was set up according to their charter to determine the root causes of war and eradicate them. But they're no closer to a resolution of conflict than they were when they began. How do we account for conflict on a local level between labor and and management, or on a personal level between husband and wife and, and fathers and, and sons and in-laws and, and their children. It just seems that people want to fight. One of my favorite stories uh, concerns the Irishman who was walking down the streets of New York and he saw a street fight and he stood and watched it for a while and then he said, tell me, is this a private fight or can anybody join in? There are people like that. They just they, they don't want to make peace. They, they want to make war. Uh, you, you may remember during the 60s the bumper sticker that, that stated, what if they gave a war and no one came? Well, that's a nice sentiment. But if they gave a war, there'd be a lot of people that would want to come. How do we, how do we account for that sort of thing? Well, James, in one sentence, gives us the source of conflict, and then what follows is a way to resolve conflict in any and every circumstance. I'm, I'm convinced that if nations took seriously what we're going to learn this morning, war would cease tomorrow. If couples took, took seriously the counsel that James give, gives, there would be no more divorce. We would know how to handle conflict. It's just, it's just that simple. This is the power of the Word of God. This is why I say Scripture talks about life. I really mean that. War would come to a stop tomorrow if nations would, would heed James' counsel. And remember, this is a word of revelation. This comes from God, who understands, why, uh, understands life. James' solution, or the source, rather, of, of quarrel and conflict is given in the second half of verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? That's what causes war. That's the root cause of war. The desire for pleasure. The, uh, the word that James uses, this translated pleasure here, is the word from which we get our term hedonism. 
A hedonist is someone who believes that uh, the highest good is the pursuit of, of pleasure. Now, there's nothing wrong with pursuing pleasure. As a matter of fact, our Constitution guarantees that one of the inalienable rights that we have is the pursuit of happiness. But the framers of our Constitution know that it is never proper to pursue happiness in any and every situation. Sometimes you have to forego your happiness for someone else's uh, pleasure. And it's never right to uh, secure our own pleasure at the cost of human life. It's never right to to look for happiness if we have to be violent, we have to rape, or we have to treat others with disdain or disrespect. That's never right. It, it's assumed by the, or it was assumed by the framers of our Constitution that, that it's only right to pursue happiness by appropriate means. Now, the, the, the problem is that other people in the world are pursuing their happiness, too. And when you have one person pursuing happiness and another pursuing happiness and they run into each other, they get frustrated. They're thwarted. And then they, they start fighting. That's how, that's how wars are begun. Someone has a piece of property that they feel is theirs. Someone else has, feels that the same piece of property is theirs. That's what's happening in Iran and Iraq, as you know. And so they, they start arguing, and then the conflict breaks out into, into open warfare. And that's why divorces happen. Because one individual feels that he or she has, has a right to happiness and the other person feels the same way. And their pursuit of happiness causes them to, to separate eventually. No one's willing to forego his or her rights. It's that ruthless pursuit of our own pleasure that, that causes war. Now let me give you some illustrations. They're homely, but they're, they're the only ones I can think of. The, the best illustrations always come out of your own personal experience, and these are all mine. Okay. I love to take hot showers. That, that's one of the last great pleasures in life. <laughs> and uh, it's just, just uh, the greatest thing to turn that hot water on and just stand in there and sing or whatever. The, the problem is I have a 13-year-old who also likes to take hot showers. Uh, I generally am up before he's up, and so I'm in there taking my shower, and right in the middle of my, my hot shower, these fists start beating on the... We only have one shower that we can use upstairs, and so Jai starts beating on the shower. Hey, any hot water left? And I have to turn off my hot shower. But uh, that's hard to do. You know, if I just insisted on uh, taking a hot shower and Josh had to take a cold shower, then we'd come into conflict. There might be uh, war. <laughs> uh, I have a spot on the Boise River that I love to fish and uh, I know that spot very well and I almost always catch fish there and uh, Josh and I the other day went sneaking through the willows you have to crawl through a bunch of willows on your hands and knees to get there and, and uh, we were all rigged up and ready to go and, and when we crawled into the opening where the where the, my no tell em hole is, here was this Philistine, this barbarian. <laughs> that was stand. I mean, he was not fishing from the bank. He was standing in my hole, throwing all this junk around, you know, with a spinning rod, and uh, spooking every, 
any fish that had any sense for a quarter of a mile up and down the river. It's enough to make a preacher cuss. (laughs) Or kill. (laughs) And believe me, wars have gotten started over over less than that. Um, Wednesdays, third and last homely illustration. Wednesdays are very hard for me. I I start out early in the morning talking. Uh, We have our men's Bible study at 6.30, and I usually... hang around and talk until 8.30, and then we have a staff meeting all morning, and I talk all morning, and then I have uh, two Bible studies, usually back-to-back on Wednesday afternoon, and by the time I get home at 5, I have about a foot of tongue hanging out, and I don't want to talk. Guess who wants to talk? <laughs> As it happened last Wednesday, Carolyn had been sick all day. She hadn't talked to anyone, and she wanted to talk. Now, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that creates war, or at least a cold war, if you know what I mean. <laughs> now, that's what James is saying. It's, it's the frustration of our drive for pleasure that causes conflict, and that conflict breaks out sometimes into, into open warfare. That's why James goes on to say in verse 2, You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. And you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And we say, well, it doesn't lead quite that far. I haven't killed anyone yet. But, uh, but most murders are crimes of passion. They aren't premeditated. Someone became so frustrated that they, they struck out in anger and, and, and killed someone. Now, James says it can go that far. You do not have, he says, because you do not ask. Now he begins to move toward a resolution of conflict. How do you, how do you solve the problem of frustrated desire, frustrated pleasure and, and uh, happiness? Well, the place to begin, he says, is simply to ask. To ask of God. Instead of working directly on the person who is frustrating you, work indirectly through God. Begin to ask Him about the concerns that you have. Express your needs to Him. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk to others who are in conflict with us and who are frustrating us. Certainly we should. We should try to resolve any conflict first by, on, on a reasonable basis. But, but what happens after you've talked the thing out and the other person doesn't want to give in? You want to buy a snowmobile this winter, and she wants to buy a new couch. And you talk the thing over, and, and both of you are adamantly opposed to the other's pleasures and desires. What, what do you do? How do you resolve it? Well, there comes a time, James says, when you just have to back off and start talking to God about it. You don't keep on talking to the person. You, you're not getting anywhere, and so you start talking to God. You express your needs to him. Uh, James very often is, is thinking of Jesus' words. He even employs his exact statements from time to time. And I, I think James was thinking of, of Jesus' promise in Matthew 7, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it shall be opened. 
Or what man is there among you when he has uh, when his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? If your son asks you for for bread to eat, are you going to give him a put a rock on his plate? Is that appropriate action for a father? Or if he asks for a fish, he won't give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now, he doesn't promise that he'll always give us what uh, what we ask for, but he'll give us what is good. He'll give us the, the, the resources, the strength, the wisdom to live with our frustrated desires, whatever they may be. And he'll give us the satisfaction that the thing itself might have provided for us, but he, he may not give us exactly what we ask for. That's not what's promised. But he will give us good. That's why James goes on to, to limit this broad, sweeping promise by saying in verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. God knows that some of our requests are purely selfish and they are self-destructive. And and therefore, he won't always give us everything we ask for. Or he may delay the giving of it, because delay is always part of the process. But one thing we can be sure of, he'll give us what's good. So when you're frustrated and thwarted in some desire for physical satisfaction or sexual satisfaction or emotional satisfaction or whatever it may be, James says the approach is not to ruthlessly demand that everyone meet your needs, but simply ask. Communicate your needs to the person, but if the person doesn't hear, doesn't heed, doesn't care, then talk to God about it. Ask him. And he'll give you what's good. Not necessarily what you want. He may, he may not, but he'll give you what's good. Some of you have heard my story about the uh, man who stood up in a church service and began to pray one of these long theological uh, complex uh, prayers. Oh, thou great God, almighty, sovereign Father who sitteth upon the circle of the earth before whom... The inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And this lady who was sitting behind him tugged on his coat and said, just, just call him Father and ask him for something. <laughs> and that's what James is saying. He's a father. He wants to give good things. So just call him Father and ask him and let him work it out according to his own time, his own timetable, in his own way. You women who are studying Hebrews know that uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was heard for his much praying in Gethsemane. He prayed, uh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. He wanted to avoid the cross. Nevertheless, he, he prayed on, not my will, but yours be done. And the author of Hebrews says he was heard. Now, God did not grant the request that he bypass the cross. He had to go through the cross. But the Father gave him the resources to go through the cross and receive the glory that uh, was on the other side. And so Hebrews can say he was heard. So when you're frustrated, ask. And you'll be heard. He'll give you the grace to go through the circumstance. Or he'll give you what it is you're asking for if it's according to his will. 
You see, there are really only two alternatives in life. We, we can either pursue things God's way or we can pursue them our way. When we're frustrated, we can pursue our own way and create conflict or we can pursue things God's way and the result is good. We sow peace, as, as James tells us in chapter 3. And he goes on in, in, in verse 4 with this uh, word of, of judgment, of indictment. Apparently they had been disregarding this counsel and there was a great deal of conflict within the church. James says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? And here I take the, uh, the translation that's found in the side note of the New American Standard. The spirit which he has made to dwell in us jealously desires us. In other words, the spirit of God who indwells us is a jealous spirit. Do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? The Holy Spirit is a jealous spirit. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, or he says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's odd that he should call them adulteresses, and adulteress is an is a unfaithful woman. And that's, uh, that's precisely the point that James is trying to make. If Carolyn needed something around our house, if she needed groceries and... Uh, she went next door to our neighbor and got money from Philip to buy groceries. I, I, I would feel very uneasy about that. That would make me very uncomfortable because I want to meet her needs. I, I want to purchase those things for her. That's my responsibility as her husband. Or if she's in need of comfort and she goes down the street and finds some other man and uh, she begins to get comfort from them. I'd feel very unhappy about that. I'd feel she was being unfaithful, at least in, in, in heart. If not, in fact, she would be an adulteress because I want to meet those needs. And that's what James is saying. God wants to meet every need of our heart. And when we try to resolve our problems the world's way by pushing and shoving and arguing and demanding and, and throwing our weight around and and resorting to violence, then we, we play right into the hands of the world. We cozy up to the world. That's worldliness, James says. When, when I was a kid growing up, I was told that worldliness is playing cards and dancing and smoking and going to movies and those sorts of things. And I, I began to see pretty early in the game that it's possible to avoid all those things and still have very worldly attitudes. And this is one of them. James says if we go around pushing our, ourselves, demanding that everyone measure up to our standards, insisting that everyone meet our, our needs, we're worldly, we're doing things the world's way, and we're being unfaithful to our Lord who loves us and who wants to give. He's the greatest giver this world has, has ever seen. As James says earlier, he's the father of every good and perfect gift from whom there is no variableness, neither shadow caused by turning. He never turns his back on us. He's, never, he's like the sun. He's never eclipsed. 
or shadow. He's always the same. He's always benevolent. He's always good. He wants to provide. Why then do we go, do we resort to something else to try to resolve our problems instead of coming to him and simply asking? And when we ask, James says, he gives a greater grace that is greater than the gift we receive when we demand and uh, get it on our own, on our own hook, on our own strength. Have, have you men ever had the experience of planning a hunting trip or a fishing trip or some backcountry uh, junket and discovering that your wife had plans for that weekend? And uh, you decide, I'm not going to be pushed around by this woman. I'm going to assert my manhood and go anyway. And you go, and when you get there, the whole thing tastes like ashes in your mouth. You don't enjoy any of it. But when we're willing to set aside our rights and let God give us what we think we need in his own time and in his own way, it has such a sweet taste. That's what, that's what James means when he says he gives a greater grace far greater than, than any gift we can get on our own. When we rest and relax and let God provide for us, there's a, a great sense of inner joy and peace and, and happiness that we can't get any other way. But James says God only gives to those that are humble. He resists the proud if we storm around and demand that everyone give us our rights and meet our needs then God can't do anything with us. But when we humble ourselves, then he gives a greater grace. And he quotes this uh, proverb to, to corroborate that, uh, that principle. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now the question is, how, how, how do you humble yourself? What does it mean to be humble? I'm sure all of you are waiting for my next book, Humility and How I Achieved It. <clears throat> but you don't have to wait because it's right here, verses 7 through 10. What follows uh, is a series of, of commands, imperatives, that tell us what it means to be humble. Humility is not going about saying, I can't do anything, I'm nobody. It's doing what James says to do in the verses that follow. Number one, verse seven. Submit, therefore, to God. That's where we begin when, when, when we are at loggerheads with someone, when we cannot resolve the, uh, the situation. When we've, we've run right up against someone whose pursuit of pleasure is... Uh, uh, is inveighing against your pursuit of pleasure and you've tried to talk it out and there's no way to resolve it, the first thing to do is to submit to God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it, it means to recognize that God is the author of the circumstances in which you find yourself. The little hands that beat on your shower door are really God's hands. The uh, fisherman standing in the middle of your favorite uh, run is... Uh, uh, that, that's God's man. The husband or wife who does not meet your emotional needs or who is so unreasonable is God's hand in your life. You say, now wait a minute, where, where does Satan come in all of this? Yes, 
Satan is the uh, mischief maker in the world, and he's the one who stirs up people to do evil things. But, but God is the secret governor of the universe. He's the sovereign Lord of the world. And, and nothing happens without his permission. God is in control of things. And the person who is frustrating you, though they may be motivated by evil, are frustrating you because God is sovereignly permitting it, just as he did in the case of Job. So that's really the fingers of God in our life. The husband who is not meeting your needs, the wife who isn't responsive. Those are the fingers of God. Corey Ten Boom says that God wants to, to, to squeeze us like grapes to make fresh wine out of us. And we resist him. And we forget that the fingers that are squeezing us are the fingers of God. Not your husband or wife or employer or employee. It's God. And, and so submitting to God means saying, okay, all right. I'll accept this set of circumstances as from you. You've permitted this for some some higher and greater reason than I can ever imagine, and, and then we just rest in it. And secondly, James says, resist the devil. I think these two go together. Uh, again, it seems that there are only two options. If we're submitting to God, we're resisting the devil. If we're submitting to the devil, we're resisting God. Because uh, you, we, resist the God, we, we resist the devil by uh, simply refusing to work things out in a, in a harmful way, we refuse to, to let our pride rule. The real tip-off as to when Satan is at work in our life is, is, is when the issue is pride. It's me, my rights, our wounded pride. The thing that may be frustrating you is that nobody really appreciates you. You, you work hard all day, you, you, cook, you cook great meals, and uh, your husband and children come home, and they eat it in 10 seconds or left, less, and then they go off and leave you with all the dirty dishes. And there you stand in the kitchen, and you're thinking, nobody appreciates me. You know where that thought comes from? That comes from Satan. Anytime we feel wounded pride because we're overlooked or unnoticed, that's Satan. He does not turn up in the forms that we think he shows up in. He didn't come around knocking on our door, and you open the door, and here's this fellow with a red underwear on with his <laughs> tail tucked in the trap door and, and a pitchfork, and he says, Go rob the First National Bank. <laughs> That's not the way he shows up. If he did, we'd say, Oh, I know who you are. You're the devil. I'm not going to do that. What he does is work. So insidiously, it's hard to spot him. And whenever our pride is wounded, whenever we feel we're being overlooked, when we feel that we're being frustrated, our needs are not being met, that's Satan. And we resist him by submitting to God. And we say, all right, Lord, this set of circumstances has been planned from eternity, for me. And I'll accept it and submit to it, no matter how much it, it hurts. And James says, if you're doing that, then you're resisting the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse uh, 8, the third step is to draw near to God, and uh, he will draw near to you. 
I think uh, James is describing here what Jesus described as abiding in Christ. Start listening to his word, reflecting upon the truth as it is in Jesus. Pray, depend upon him, cling to him, hang on to him with, with all of your might. And uh, then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. In other words, to judge the attitudes and the actions. That's the heart, the mind, and the hands, the cleansing of the, of the heart and the hands. Judge the attitudes and actions that create so much discord and disharmony. It's a serious thing. It's not a picadillo. It's not some small thing. It's a very serious sin because it creates chaos where there ought to be peace. Humble yourselves. He returns again to this idea. Be humbled. Literally, it's passive. Be humbled in the presence of God. Why? So he can exalt you. You see, the problem is we want to exalt ourselves. We want to work these problems out all on our own. We don't want any help from anyone. And that's why we create so much chaos wreak so much havoc in our families and in the world. That's why nations go to war. To solve this problem apart from God, we've got to exalt ourselves. We have to maintain our national pride. We have to be somebody. And, and that's what creates the damage. But if James says if, if we're humbled, if we'll, if we'll accept the circumstances as from God and we'll resist satanic attempts to to get us to try to assert ourselves and demand that everyone measure up to our standards and meet our, our needs. And we simply express the concerns and the needs and the hurts of, of our heart to our Lord and rest in him and purge the, the evil attitudes and actions that create so much discord from our lives that he, in time, will exalt us. Um, Peter quotes this uh, same proverb, Proverbs 3. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then he goes on to, to say almost exactly what, what James says. If we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you in due time. There's that idea of due process again. The exaltation may not happen today. What we ask for may not come tomorrow or, or next year. We may have to wait until we see the Lord to have everything we've been asking for. It may be God's will for you to go through life without a husband or a wife. On the other hand, it may be his will for, for you to have a partner. It may be God's will for you to go through life without a child, though you desperately want one. But uh, you don't need to be frustrated or thwarted by that set of what we would call unhappy circumstances because that's, that's God's hand. And if we submit to him, we believe in his goodness, in his ultimate goodness, in time, he will exalt us, either in this life or in the life to come. Ray Stedman used to tell a story about a missionary couple who returned from Africa after 40 years of faithful service. And uh, the, this was during the era of, uh, of Beatle mania. <clears throat> and the Beatles happened to be on the ship with him, with them, this couple. 
They arrived in, uh, in New York City, and there was a, a large group of, of young people there to meet the Beatles. They had banners and a band, and, and as the Beatles came down the gangplank, they were, uh, the crowd just went crazy. And uh, this, it struck this uh, elderly gentleman. Here I have spent 40 years serving God. And I've come home, and nobody cares. And this root of bitterness began. He began to feel sorry for himself. That's that attack of Satan. It's the way he always gets at us. We begin to feel sorry for ourselves. And uh, they made their way down the gangplank, and unfortunately, the mission organization for which they worked forgot to send, to send someone to greet them. So he had to wrestle these trunks onto a taxi and... And uh, they made their way through the streets of New York. They weren't quite sure where they were going to stay. And when they got to the apartment that the mission had found for them, it was dark and cold, and there was no one there to greet them. And and uh, the heat was turned off, and the lights, and he had to get the pilots lit and the heater going, and he just became more and more bitter and resentful. And he kept expressing that bitterness to his wife. We've come home, and there's no one here to, to greet us. Nobody cares. And she said after a while, then I, I think you need to straighten this out with, with God. And he went into his bedroom and he got down on his knees beside the bed and he just poured out his heart to God, all of his bitterness and anger. And, and he told the Lord how, how unhappy he was, how frustrated he was, how unfair it was that he had lived out a, a life of service uh, and, and he had come home and no one cared. And uh, a few minutes later, he came out, and his wife could tell by the look on his face that he had worked things out. And she said, what, what, did, what happened? And he said, well, I, I told God that I had come home, and, uh, and no one had rewarded us. And he said to me, but you're not home yet. And you see, that's the way we have to look at life. And really, the older I get, the more uh, relevant uh, a story like that becomes. The payoff is not in this life. There is some payoff. I mean, life doesn't have to be grim. You know, there, there are, there's a great deal of joy along the way. And there are resources for living along the way. But uh, if we're frustrated in the pursuit of our pleasures, it doesn't really matter because there's a great day coming. And one of these days, we're going to be ushered into the presence of God, and then we will be fully exalted. We'll have everything our hearts have ever desired and longed for. The fulfillment which we, we may have missed in this life. And we'll look back on it and say it was all worth it. So uh, be humbled. I say that to myself as well as to you. Under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Let's pray. Perhaps you're facing a, a frustrating circumstance right now. There's someone in your life who, uh, who doesn't understand you, who often is not sensitive to your needs, and uh, in the pursuit of your own happiness, you, you find yourself constantly in conflict with that individual. This would be a good time to think through the, the implications of this passage and, 
and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Tell God that you realize that these circumstances are divinely designed for your good. And draw near to God, knowing that that he will draw near to you. He'll minister to you. He'll help you. He'll encourage you. He'll he'll supply the, the strength and the power, the endurance that you need. Thank him for that. And for the satisfaction that, that he gives, and he alone. Father, these are such pertinent words. All of us feel the power of them. We, uh, we struggle with, with the application to them with our own personal response because it's contrary to our own inclinations but we thank you that that you've changed our nature you've given us a new heart a new way of living we uh, we thank you in Jesus name amen